All right, so tonight we are going to be finishing up the book of Ezra. We're going to be in chapter 9 and 10, and we have interesting texts, as always, with the Bible, and we hit some, some good topics tonight that stretch us a little bit, and they challenge us, but they also, as always, in God's Word, encourage and build us up. So as we come forward to Ezra chapter 9, the book of Ezra, those first six chapters, was that first wave of returning captives from Babylon sent home and released after 70 years of captivity when the Medo-Persians came to power and Cyrus had released them and sent them home. About 50,000 came back to Israel to repopulate the land, rehabilitate their properties, their vineyards, their olive groves and things like that. And about 60 plus years have gone by including a time period that would include the book of Esther, by the way, on your timeline. And then a second wave came back, and that's the wave that Ezra is a part of. So it's been about 60 years, and now Ezra's come back, and he had the favor of the king, Artaxerxes. He had the gold, the silver. He had the open-ended credit card, if you will. He was tax-exempt, and there's a couple thousand of them at least. He needed Levites. He rallied some Levites to come with him from what is now modern Iran and Iraq to go do this. And so he's coming home to the, the promised land, the motherland, you know, Israel, God bless Israel, you know, Jehovah Jireh and all that kind of stuff. And he's a priest and he's an expert in the law. He knows the word of God, like frontwards, backwards. In the application, he's an expert in the word of God. So he shows up. They meet with the leaders that are there in Jerusalem. They count out the gold measure to the exact weight that was entrusted to them by King Artaxerxes to fortify the temple, to do the animal sacrifices on behalf of the Persian king, his sons, and to restore Israel to its glory. That's where we left off. So chapter 9, we pick it up and we read this. When these things were done, that is, they counted out the gold and all that, the leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. With respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed, that it would be Israel, is mixed with the people of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard these things, I tore my garment and my robe, plucked out some of the hair of my head and my beard, and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the word of God of Israel assembled to me, because of the transgressions of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, having torn my garment and my robe, fell on my knees, and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, O oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens." Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty for our iniquities. We, our kings, our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as it is to this day. And now, for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in this holy place, in his holy place, that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the king of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and 
Jerusalem. Let's stop there. There are words that jump out at us in these first 10 verses, first nine verses. Uh, the abominations, uh, the holy seed mixed with the peoples of the abominations. The word astonished, astonished again, on his knees, ashamed, humiliation, grace, remnant, a peg, revival, bondage, slaves, mercy, revive, rebuild, repair. Those words all tell a story, don't they? Without even grammatical sentence structure. Like, if we're learning a new language on a phone app and we don't know the grammar, we could just, if we know vocabulary, we put all those words together, we're like, hey, I get an idea what's going on here, what, what the circumstances are. Back in the book of Genesis, very interesting record for us. It's called the Dinah Incident, is the title that you'll see in your Bible, Genesis 35. But Abraham had, you know, he's the father of faith. He had passed on. Isaac had passed on. And, and Jacob is the guy. Jacob, who God changed his name to Israel, and his 12 sons. And they had a sister, Dinah. And they're in the city of Shechem, while they're just waiting on the promises of God, in that third generation of the patriarchs, there in the city of Shechem, the prince of Shechem uh, forces himself sexually upon Dinah, Jacob's daughter and the sister of the brothers. And he wants to marry her. He's had that intimacy. He wants to marry her. And him and his dad and the, the men of the village, like the community, they're, they're, an own, they're their own identity. Shechem's a major place. And they're like, go get me this woman to be my wife. Well, it comes to Jacob that he finds out that Dinah was basically raped, and the brothers are furious, and a couple of the brothers are particularly furious, and it's like, the Shechemites come out and say, look, let's make a deal. Let's all share the land. Let's make a covenant together, huh? We'll give you our daughters, you give us your daughter, and we'll merge together. We'll be, we'll be together. It'd be a good deal. We'll do business and commerce. Let's just blend the two groups of people together, the Shechemites and the, and the Israelites. In private, the men of Shechem said, listen, this is what's going to happen. We'll do whatever they we'll, When it's all said and done, we just need like one generation before they are absorbed into us. And they'll be part of us. Their children will be our children. Their wealth will be our wealth. Well, the Israelites, they say, hey, to the house of Jacob says, look, we'll do it under one condition. You circumcise all your men. Now, that's a pretty profound thing to say to a culture of uncircumcision. Like, well, you know, plus minus risk reward. So we circumcise ourselves. It's going to hurt a couple days, but we gain their wealth. You know, it's interesting what people do for money, right? You know, they say, you know, you sell your soul for wealth or rock and roll, right? So the Shechem might say, look, all right, it's going to be painful for the men for a few days. But in the end, we'll get, we'll get everything, everything that's theirs. And think how rich Abraham was. will be ours. So yeah, let's do it. Well, they circumcised themselves. And on the day they'd be in most pain, we know Dinah's brothers go out and execute them all. Now Jacob freaks out like, oh man, I'm a curse to everybody now. We're going to be wiped out. No, you're not. His sons actually had more faith than he did. 
We don't have to make theological sense of the story. What we need to know in the context of this story is when light and darkness try and share the same space, darkness usually always wins because they can't share the same space. And when two opposing moral views or worldviews merge, more often than not, the evil one triumphs over the good one. The single biggest indicator on whether or not teenagers will do drugs is, do they hang out with people who do drugs? Same with promiscuity, alcohol. We all know that. Kids from the 70s, right? You know that. If you hung out with people that smoked pot in 1975, it's only a matter of time before you're going to smoke pot. Right? We, we, that's just the way it worked. We're the sum total of the five greatest influences on our life, and in teenagers, that's usually your peer group. Those are just absolute facts that are just proven in culture and society. So when there's abominations, it's not the ethnic group of people. The Canaanites, if you will, the Jebusites, the Moabites, and Ammonites, it's not necessarily that as human beings they're abominations. It's their worldview and their idolatry and their false religions that are abominations. After all, Ruth was a Moabitess, and she converted to faith in Jehovah and, you know, you know, went to Israel, married Boaz, and the rest is King Jesus' history in the genealogy of Jesus. It's there in Matthew chapter 1. Right? So we, we, we understand, like, how even in the Old Testament, we see where when the Gentiles were willing to come to the Lord, they were invited to partake of Passover if they put their hearts in the same place of faith with the Israelites. That was the key. We need to understand that here. So imagine, here's Ezra. He's so pumped up. I'm going to the promised land my whole life. I've dreamed of it. I'm an expert of the law. He shows up and like everybody has done the exact same thing that got him cast out and taken into captivity in the first place. He's ripping his hair out, literally. And his beard and ripping his clothes. Everyone's like, whoa. Like, because we become desensitized to things, right? As they say with smoking cigarettes, the first time you try cigarettes, you're offended and aghast by it. But if you keep trying, eventually you'll accept it, and then you'll become addicted to the most addictive things there is in the human experience, tobacco. Just the way it works. And then you accept it, and you even propagate it. So you become like the frog in the boiling water, and that's what had happened to the people that had come back from captivity in about two generations' time of about 60 years. And Ezra is just completely blown away. That's the background to it. It's the background to the two chapters tonight, so that's more of an intro, per se, than just the application of these first nine verses. But I will say this before we move on. There is an application, and it's a good one. In this story were words like mixed peoples, abominations, astonished, astonished, and people are ripping their beards out. In this story, and people are ashamed and humiliated, in this story... There are a couple words that I really, in this introduction, get my attention. Grace and mercy. Grace and mercy are in these nine verses. Verse 8 has grace and verse 9 has mercy. And in the context of grace and mercy, we also see the word remnant, peg, like a tent peg in the ground, Revive, repair, rebuild. See, 
The Lord is the God of grace and mercy. Grace is giving, getting something we don't deserve, the gift we don't deserve, and mercy is not getting the punishment we do deserve. And in the captives coming back, Ezra acknowledges that God has shown them grace and mercy far beyond what they deserve. And we, when we, humanity receives grace and mercy through Jesus Christ, and the grace and mercy is extended, and even without faith, people still receive grace and mercy from the Lord. Every good thing's from the Lord, and even a, a blasphemer is receiving grace and mercy from the Lord in many ways and, and circumstances. But when we come to Christ, we receive the fullness of grace and mercy because Jesus took the wrath on us. That's the mercy. We didn't pay the price. And the grace is his righteousness is imputed to our account. So when we give our life to Christ, we receive the, the universal standard, the highest level and an equal level for all those who are born again of grace and mercy. And in so doing, we really are brought into the kingdom for the purpose of being established peg in the ground to be part of repair and rebuilding in the human experience. And what has the church done for 2,000 years when it's functioning fruitfully and faithfully by the power of the Spirit? The church rebuilds. The church, the message of the gospel, the teaching of the word, and the serving saints in the kingdom of God, they, they what we touch, we build up. We make or we build orphanages. We build up marriages. We feed people that are, have no food. We bring dignity to people who live in societies with worldviews that allow them to be kept down because of their ethnicity or their case system of the society they live in. Isn't that a beautiful thing? I just want to remind us tonight, you know, like, we are the recipients of grace and mercy, and when we fail and fall short and do foolish things like we're reading about here, where there's compromises with that which is an abomination, God does extend grace and mercy to his people. But it's not so we can continue in him. And as I've learned in 35 years of walking with the Lord, plus, I've learned to apply grace properly to my shortcomings and mercy. I don't need to beat myself up. The devil will be happy to do it. And my conscience wants to do it. And that's why we've got to go into the blood of Christ. Because grace and mercy will always take us forward every day. His mercies are new some days, next week, every morning. Yeah. His mercies are new every morning. So we all, failure is inevitable, growth is optional. And the way we grow is we apply grace and mercy properly, not abusively. It's not a get-out-of-jail card like in the game of Monopoly. Grace and mercy is applied when we just find ourselves in a situation that in most cases, hopefully, we weren't intending to be there. God wants us to be established, and he wants to bring repair and restoration to the human experience through our lives as long as we're alive, that whatever we touch is the blessings of Christ. God wants us to be the kind of people that, like when Jesus touched the leper, the leper didn't defile them, Jesus cleansed the leper. The healing hands of Jesus and how he treated people, which were seen in Matthew on Saturday nights, it's all good. That's who he wants us to be. Yeah. There's folly. We, there's mixing. There's abominations. And it's hard not to be affected by these things in our own sinful nature with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. But even so, with shame and humiliation, God is still the God of grace and mercy. And he's still the God of revive and repair. And that's why I can tell someone who's murdered someone or raped someone or those most evil acts imaginable to our human experience because they're repulsive to us. And I've ministered to people who have done both those things. 
when they've asked me if grace could be applied to their life, I emphatically say yes. Because it's, it's, I believe as long as someone has a breath of life, they're like the thief on the cross, and the opportunity for grace and mercy is still there. And if it's not for some reason, and they've crossed the line that people can cross, how would I know? And how would you know? Only God would know. So we should always presume they're on this side of the line and let God be true and every man a liar and let God work. Let's believe God for the best for all of humanity, no matter how depraved it is. That's how Mother Teresa, that's why Mother Teresa is so, uh, you know, esteemed by so many cultures worldwide, regardless of religion. Because we represent Christ and we go where no one's willing to go and we reach the lowest levels of the human experience, and we, we bring grace and mercy to that situation because we've experienced and we can give it and show it. Now we read on in this story. So he, he said all that about being a peg and a revive and repair, but verse 10, he says, he asked this question, and now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying the land which you enter entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations, with which they filled from one end to another with their impurity. Now, therefore, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace and prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you are God, have punished us less than our iniquity deserved, and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there would be no remnant or survivor? O oh, Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as is to this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this you got to just so appreciate Ezra, right? You just need passionate people. We need passionate people who lead and really care about things that we should care about. And they're willing to be at the front of it. And their, their passion is contagious, for sure. And his, his would have been. His, it is, because before we were done tonight, I mean, he inspires all the people. He inspires them to do the right things. He's quoting the law of God going back to Moses and Deuteronomy and Exodus and all that, which God had said, because we just covered it, darkness usually absorbs light, not vice versa. And he's saying, we're doing the very thing that got us in trouble in the first place. It got us cast out. You guys have been back for two generations, and you're doing the very thing. Pastor Sam pointed out to me before service that in the book of Nehemiah, it's even brought up that some of these Israelites didn't even speak the Israelite language. They had been so uh, pluralized by the abomin abominable culture, they didn't even speak the language of their own people. Now, it's one thing if you come to America and you speak a mother language. My great-grandfather came from Norway, and he spoke mostly Norwegian, and it was the next generation, my grandfather Fred, that learned English, right? Many of you have the same story. But it's quite another if, like, say, for example, you're Romanian, and you left Romania, and you came back to Romania, and you found the people in Romania speaking a different language. That would be weird. So I'm speaking culturally here in the, of nationalities and ethnicities and languages so we can understand. But what's profound and super important is this is people of covenant. 
This is why Israel is so unique, and this is why it's so difficult to try and make America or England or any other country the Israel of God today, because we're not. Only Israel was in a covenant as a nation with God. America's never been in a covenant, nor was England. American England and now South Korea have done great things for the gospel, as have Chinese and many other nations. But none of these nations that are on planet Earth right now are in a covenant as a nation with God. That's a dangerous theology. And when I was in Virginia Beach, I knew a lot of people who had that theology. And let me tell you, it's scary. The proper application of understanding this is more like in the church. These are people of covenant. So the morality is really not a national ethnic thing. It's more a moral covenant thing for the people of faith. And that's important to understand contextually. They were not to marry with non-believers. It was that simple. Because there in Leviticus, Deuteronomy and Numbers and Exodus were told what the people were like. And they were evil to the core. And if God explained what they did, and what they did was really bad. And by the time the Israelites were cast out of the land, off to Assyria, off to Babylon, we're told, and you remember this in Chronicles, they were doing worse than the Canaanites were when they came into the land under Joshua. They actually got worse. You ever seen that before when some people go to church and sometimes they're like on a high horse and judge everybody and then they walk away from the Lord and they're worse than all the people they ever condemned? I've seen it. It's like, wow, did not see that happening. But then you realize, actually, I did. We should never be surprised by things like that. Because once you're the frog in the boiling water, you just you become indifferent to the climate change. And you just, we, change, we shift our theology to match our lifestyle. So people who are very firm in their theology, once they compromise their theology, and they have to live with their conscience in their life, so they then change their theology. And you can always find a church in America and a lot of parts of the world that will have a theology to match your spiritual temperament. So if you don't believe Jesus is the only way, and if you don't believe the word of God is the final authority, there are hundreds of denominations in America. You can go to church and, and go have fellowship with them. So we can understand the context of all this going on here. Again, these words, think of people of covenant now. Think more like church, okay? Forsaken. The word. Uh, unclean. Uncleanness. Abominations. Impurity. Do not. Evil deeds. Great guilt. Abominations. But even so... He says in verse 13, you've punished us less than we deserve, but here again we're going to do worse. Ezra is aware that grace and mercy do have a limit, and he realizes we have to turn the tide on this right now. We have to turn this around for the people of covenant in our faith right now. Because the only reason they existed in the land is because God gave it to them under the covenant. So to to be fruitful in the land and have an inheritance to give their children in the land is they have to obey the God, their God, the God of the universe, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They need to obey God in what he said. And whether he explains why it's so or not doesn't matter. They need to obey. Now, we know the why, and it does make sense. But they need to obey. Do not be unequally yoked. Now, of course, this brings us to a New Testament topic. And there in 2 Corinthians Led by the Holy Spirit, this is how Paul said it in chapter 6 of verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. 
For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial, or demons? Or what has a part, what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? See, that's the real challenge. Now, these are human relationships of men and women. The context of what we're reading. Being unequally yoked. Now, we do know in 1 Corinthians 7 about being unequally yoked, that people are unequally yoked in a marriage, that the believer should seek to stay in the marriage if the non-believer wants to stay in the marriage, and that really the believer's life is a preserving influence on the marriage and the children. So that is interesting that their presence brings a blessing to that. And, you know, I've known many people have been in unequally yoked marriages where that's the case, and it's honorable to honor that. But the reality is this. You know, when, you, when you're attracted to someone, and we know, we, you older people know this, but you younger people need to know this, um, and we should just call it because it is the way it is. We can be attracted to people instantaneously, just for whatever reason. We might be attracted to their looks, their personality, their, their humor, or all sorts of things. There's things that attract, attract people. Sometimes it's an immediate attraction. Sometimes it's, it's, a, it's just it's a developing attraction. It can be more emotional than physical, but we all know when two people, a man and a woman, are being attracted to each other, there's, it just starts to get going, you know? Like, it just gets going. And that's the way God's designed it. It is. But we also know that that, that can't sustain a journey. That's a very short, exciting window to begin a relationship. And where the Lord's the Lord of it all, a marriage can go deeper, stronger, farther, faster than anything even started that way. It can. And it should, by the way in all the seasons of life. There's no reason the fire has to die off when you're getting older. It should get stronger. It could get stronger if you keep the Lord first. Because walking with the Lord in a marriage is like a triangle. The Lord's here. As long as the husband and the wife are both seeking the Lord, they're going in the same direction. And they're just going to keep building each other up. And as long as they're both living by faith, their marriage is going to go from glory to glory to glory. That's the reality. And I've been living it for 35 years. So praise the Lord. But you do see where, like, obviously, when you, when in a marriage, like, what's the purpose of the marriage? Well, if you're believers, it's to glorify Christ. And it's an example of Christ in the church. If you're not, then what do you got? It's, it's Adam and Eve in a fallen garden, or expelled from a fallen garden. It's different worldviews. And we find that Christ is the one catalyst that will always bring us together in a marriage, unlike any other thing or person, or force, or power, because he wants to. So if you're married, just know God's always for your marriage. If you're unequally yoked, know God is for your marriage. And just keep loving, keep serving, and keep shining for Christ. But the idea of being equally yoked isn't just limited to marriage. It's with business. It's all sorts of things. Amos, God said through Amos the prophet, and I quote this fairly often, you should know by now, Amos 3.3, can two walk together for not in agreement? Business partnerships are a journey. Marriage is a journey. Life is a journey. And if you're going to the same place, Celestial City, like in Pilgrim's Progress, the famous book by John Bunyan, then you can agree on where you're going and what you're doing and the purpose of the journey. But if you're not, then you, you, you can be the yellow brick road, you know, with the scarecrow, and you might want to go this way, and they want to go that way. It's, the more that you know you're like-minded, the better. And even two people being both being Christians may not be equally yoked. And I've learned this from experience by observation. 
I had a good friend who was in the mission field, met another woman in the mission field in England. They fell in love in the mission field. They got married and they got divorced. They had two kids, got divorced about eight years later. The, the crux of the problem was this. She had a Pentecostal background and she came from churches where women were pastors. And in that situation, many women usurp the authority of God's design and order in a marriage and the, the order that God has given. Like it or not, that's the order he's given. He came from a Calvary Chapel background. We were both Christians. Yeah, but you have completely different worldviews on what church you go to. It's like if you're a Southern Baptist and you're going to marry a Pentecostal, an extreme Pentecostal. So an extreme Pentecostal will believe that you have to speak in tongues as evidence of being born again. Well, an extreme Baptist would be, no one's got the gifts for today, and that's that, and that settles that. So you two can say, oh, we unify in Christ at a Billy Graham crusade or a Harvest crusade. Yeah, we all agree, everyone should be saved. But the moment you go on a date, you realize, like, hey, we got, we're not going to go to the same church. So you see, being equally yoked is really important. And these are things that we, 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 we can't be afraid to speak of and say of. It's important. So let me just say this. If you're in an unequally yoked situation and God's got you there and you're committed to that and that's where your yes is yes, then shine for the Lord and thrive in it. Bloom where you're planted. But if there's situations you're thinking about and you know it's not equally yoked, a partnership, a business thing, an adventure, whatever, be, be wise. Be wise. We once entrusted someone with a lot of money, and I thought we were equally yoked in how he was managing that money. We were not. Because I told him clearly what the standards were and the rules were with investing that money, and he did something different, and we lost a fair bit of money over it. And I realized we had a kingdom view of the money, and we had a kingdom standard how the money was going to be managed, he had a worldly view of the money and a worldly standard, and he just decided that he didn't have to honor our standard. So it was no big deal for him to not honor what he told us he would do and what I told him to do. But I would presume, when I tell you this is the standard, that you're going to do it, right? This is over six digits. We didn't lose six digits, but he was managing over six digits in cash. See, we were unequally yoked. Note to self, next time, give away to missionaries. So you can waste your time with these people. 2009, right? 2009, you with me? 2009. Stop, sell. You know what that means, stop, sell? That means if the stock goes to this, you sell it automatically. You can set that up. Now, it was like a stop, sell. They didn't stop, sell. I had the Lord wake me up at 2 in the morning saying, you need to get that, you need to call them and get your money out of that right now. I trusted him for a stop, sell. I had Jesus wake me up at 2 in the morning and say, go get it out. See, you need to be equally yoked. Equally yoked. in the standards of how you carry yourself and live your life. If you can be. And if not, do the best you can and make sure that you don't compromise your convictions for the Lord to appease those who have different ones. Do, as much as up to you, live peacefully with all men. But just know Jesus comes first. Big time. Always. Chapter 10. Now, while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men and women and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. 
And Shechaniah, the son of Jehelio, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the lands. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away these wives and those who have been born to them, according to the advice of my master and of all those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Like, yeah, great idea. You do it. But Ezra was up for it. Verse 5. Then Ezra rose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore an oath. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Elisha. When he came out, when he came out from there, he ate no bread, drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. And they issued a proclamation throughout all Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem and that whoever would not come within three days according to the instructions of the leaders and the elders, all his property would be confiscated and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from captivity. See, I just point out here parenthetically, this is the difference between the people of covenant, like church government and church affairs, as opposed to social governments and national governments. This is the distinction because if you think of this as taking place in the church, you understand the context in light of 1 Corinthians 5, Matthew 18, and other passages. If you think of this as a national thing taking place, you think this isn't good. But remember, these are the people of covenant. Because you can't really enforce this in the world like this, but in the people of covenant, you can, and they were supposed to. Verse 9. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days, and it was the ninth month, on the 20th of the month. And all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore make confession to the Lord your God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourself from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. Then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, Yes, as you have said, so we must do. But there are many people... It is the season for heavy rain. We're not able to stand outside, nor is this the work of one or two days. For there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. Please let the leaders of our entire assembly stand and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of their cities until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, oppose this, this, this plan and Meshulam and Shibathai, the Levite, gave them support. So a couple of key people said this is not a good idea, whether they felt that they needed to resolve it right then and there or they should just let it go. We don't know, but they're known for not going along with this. So this happened, and it happened fast. Oh, so painful. Mm. Again, in the book of Genesis, we know the story of Abraham where, you know, God promised him a son, and from him, a multitude more than the stars, and we know there's trillions of galaxies, that just innumerable multitude would come from him. People of promise, Israel, that the Messiah would come through him. Yet Sarah was barren, and he, like, how long is this going to go on? And he had brought home Hagar from Egypt when they'd gone down there during the famine. And he got the bright idea that he'd just have a surrogate wife to give him a child, or actually Sarah got the idea, to have this surrogate child through Hagar, the handmaiden, and this would be the son of promise. Now, Abraham's got 
couple hundred people that work for him. He's waited a long time for a child. He has a child through this woman, but it's not Sarah. And we know the Bible calls him the son of flesh. Ishmael is the son of flesh. Sarah would have the son of promise, Isaac. But this is what Abraham did, and he loved him. I mean, Abraham loved Ishmael. Wouldn't you? Your first son? He's 12 years old. You know, that's like first day of kindergarten. That's AYSO soccer. That's Little League. You know, that's peewee football. That's like, you know, it's all the fun stuff. A dad and a son. All the wealth of knowledge Abraham had as a father of faith. He wants to pour into this kid. And yet he saw the tension with Hagar and Sarai in the house. And then God said, you're going to have a son of promise by this time next year, Genesis 17. And Sarah, your wife, now 90, is going to bring forth a child, and you're going to call him Isaac laughter, because people are just going to laugh. It's just crazy. It's, people are going to laugh. And she laughed when the angels came. We know the story there in Genesis 19. And she said, I didn't laugh. And the angel's like, no, you did. She's like, okay, I did. I did laugh. But in Genesis 17, there's an interesting scene where Abraham is crying out to the Lord, Oh, God, God promised him the son of promise. It's, he's coming next year. And Abraham's like, oh, God, please let Ishmael stand before you. Think how much he loved Ishmael. And the Bible tells us, put away the handmaiden. He was required, required by God to send Hagar on her way with Ishmael, the son he loved. It's like family court in Santa Ana. And he's the total loser, and God's the judge. You know, the things that we birth in our flesh, we want them to succeed, and we want God to bless them. And we don't want to admit we're wrong. And we're willing to stay married to a bad idea and a bad decision for our entire lifetime. And more often than that, we're willing to justify it. In that hallmark, landmark book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie, one of the most famous books you can ever read apart from the Bible, he brings up an interesting fact of science that no matter how much you can convince someone, particularly in political issues, they're wrong, rarely ever will they ever admit it. We would prefer to ignore all the objective truth that shows us we're wrong because then we have to admit we're wrong and then we become like Fonzie in Happy Days because we can't say we're roo right? Remember Fonzie? Who roo if you don't know the show Happy Days back in the 70s? Fonzie's like, hey, the Fonz, you know? Like, he, couldn't, he could never say he was wrong. I was roo there's, in this, there's this incredible thing as fallen descendants of Adam and Eve. We do not like to admit we're wrong, even when we're proven without a doubt we're wrong. We've seen the video. We've seen the data. You're wrong. We don't want to admit we're wrong. We will stay married to a bad idea to our grave. And that's why it's so important we're teachable and we're willing to grow in the Lord always, each and every day. Because we have to receive from the Lord when he says it's time to divorce yourself from this idea, this decision, this financial decision, this personal decision, this relationship decision, this, this moral decision or immoral decision. Instead of justifying it and putting cheap grace over it, we need to, we need to go to divorce court with the Lord and divorce ourselves from those things that God says, divorce yourself from it. And it's, it's hard. It's hard to admit, admit you made a mistake financially with an investment, a partnership, and a relationship. You could be engaged a couple of years, and the Lord's like, I'm telling you now. Oh, Lord, I've already invested two years in this relationship. We've already got the wedding. The place is booked nine months from now. Listen, it's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. 
and you're losing this amount of money right now, you're going to lose a whole lot more if you wait till later down the road. And you older people, you know what I'm talking about, right? How many times does God say, let it go now when it only costs you a couple thousand, and you're determined to hold on to it, and then it costs you a hundred thousand? It only costs you like a little bit of heartbreak early on in this relationship where some people don't recover from that relationship they've forced upon the Lord and they're not willing to divorce themselves from that relationship and they take their life or take someone else's life and it just it's the worst. God is saying right here, you need to separate, you need to divorce. You you built unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And this was the house they built. They chose to go against the Lord. They chose to have these relationships against the Lord. They chose to have children in this situation. And I just can't even imagine how painful this would be. But it has to be. Because they still have a life of faith to live. And they still have a life of obedience to live. And there's a future and a hope for those who live by faith and are willing to make straight the crooked path and divorce themselves, admit they're wrong, and just obey the Lord. That's where the blessing's going to always be. And poor Abraham's heart was tormented and ripped out over not being able to be with Ishmael when he's the senior in high school. And he's a high school quarterback. He can't go to the games because he's in the other part of the Middle East. When he's getting his degree for being the smartest guy at Babylonian U, he can't be there. He just can't. And I've ministered to a lot of people in 35 years of ministry who had to let previous marriages and children go because they just can't be there. What we should do is obey the Lord and instead of focusing on what's not happening, focus on what is happening. Don't hold on to a bad decision to the bitter end and let it cost you everything. Because the one thing for sure it'll cost you to hold on to a bad decision that the Lord is saying let go is it will cost you peace with the Lord, it'll cost you joy with the Lord, and it'll cost you fruit with the Lord. It's just easier to just look in the mirror and say, I was wrong, and this is going to hurt, and this is going to cost me something, and I got to admit that this thing that we've been working on, (laughs) it was wrong, and we're going to let it go this day, and we're going to accept our losses right here and now, instead of beating our head against the wall and against the Lord. This relationship, these finances, this decision, this business, you got to let it go. This man, oh, this is so strong in my life at 62 in the human experience of observing people. Let the bad decisions go. Don't, like, you want to be persistent for good decisions because the world, the human experience rewards persistence for the right decisions, and certainly the Lord does. Not to go weary and doing good, but we have to know when the Lord says, divorce yourself from this, you got to do it. However painful it is, to obey is better than the sacrifice. We don't want to pay, you don't want to just play church from here to eternity, do you? You want to have fruit and power and passion, the kingdom. Now we close out the chapter. Verse 16, we're going to get some names here. Then the descendants of the captivity did so, and Ezra the priest with certain heads of the father's household were set apart by the father's households, each by name, and they sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. And among the sons of the priests who had taken pagan wives, the following were found of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak and his brothers, Masahiah, Eliezer, Jerob, 
and Gedaliah. And by the way, this is the naughty list. Uh, verse 19. And they gave their promise that they would put away their wives. And being guilty, they presented a ram of the flock as their trespass offering. Because remember, beginning this book, people had good names for being willing to go back. But now this is the people that, this is what they chose to do. And it's a public record in the Bible. Also, the sons of Emer, Hanani, and Zebediah, of the sons of Hiram, Massasiah, Elijah, Shemiah, Jehiliel, Uzziah, of the sons of Pastor, Elanoi, Massiah, Ishmael, Nathaniel, Josabad, and Elias. Also, the Levites, Josabad, Shimei, Keliah, the same as Kalida, uh, Pethaniah, Judah, and Eliezer. Also, of the singers, here's everybody, man, uh, Elishabab, and of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telem, and Uri. And the others of Israel, the sons of Perash, Ramai, Jeziah, Malachiah, Majim, Eliezer, Malchijah, Benaniah, the sons of Elam, Mataniah, Zechariah, Jehiliel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Eliah. Of the sons of Zatu, Eliahnoi, Eliashib, Mataniah, Jeremoth, Zabad, Azaziah. Of the sons of Bebe, Jehonanan, Hananiah, Zabai, Athaliah. Of the sons of Bani, Meshalam, Malak, Adiah, Jeshub, Sheol, and Ramoth. Of the sons of Pathmoab, Adna, Chalal, Benaniah, Masaiah, Mataniah, Baziel, Beninu, and Masi. Of the sons of Hiram, Eliezer, Ishijah, Malkijah, Shemiah, Shimeon, Benjamin, Malak, and Shemariah. Of the sons of Hashem, Matani, Matatah, Zebad, Elephelite, Jeremiah, Manasseh, and Shimei. Of the sons of Bani, Madai, Amram, Uyel, Benaniah, Benaniah, Chulo, Benaniah, Merimothab, Eliashib, Mataniah, Matani, Jasai, Banai, Benui, Shimei, Shelemiah, Nathan, Adoniah, Machnadad, Dabai, Shashiah, Shariah, Azrael, Shelemiah, Shemariah, Shalom, Amariah, and Joseph. Of the sons of Nebo, Jeel, Mattatiah, Zabad, Zabina, Jedi, Joel, and Benaniah. All these had taken pagan wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. This would be a really tough list to be on, but I do have an encouraging thought before we shift gears and move on to communion. It is an unusual ending for the book, isn't it? It's like, it's not the honor roll. It's like, you know, you got expelled or something, but not really, because they are receiving mercy and grace. I mean, they are under the threat of losing their property. We understand that, but still, fair enough, by doing the right thing after examination, by confession and repentance, because they are doing that, they're going to be restored. They have to make things right. You know, there are so many lists in human history of people who were shamed publicly. Like after World War II, collaborators, you know, there'd be a list in the city of Paris who collaborated with the Nazis, you know, and they'd, you know, expelled from the city, lose their property. Like, there's some really bad lists that you could be on, for sure. Shaming list. The beauty of this shaming list is it's not the end of the story. Because, in fact, in the very thing that's happening here, they are being set straight for the good things of the Lord and what the Lord has for them. Isn't that awesome? So this list hurts. And, and doesn't confession, repentance hurt, really? You know, 
Shame and humiliation, like, like Ezra said, the shame and humiliation. Still, though, when, when you really get it right, the next day is so much better, isn't it? When you really, really, yeah, when you really are broken, you're ripping your hair out in your beard, and you're sincere, it's, it's going to be a new day. Sorrow may come at night, but joy comes in the morning. And the heart that's turned from the wrong way, the wrong life, the wrong choices, and has turned to the right way, the right life, the right choices, it's just going to be a beautiful morning. It's going to hurt for a while. But in the end, look at all the good things that God's going to restore. Peace, joy, love, relationships, prosperity, and blessing. And the inheritance, because back to the previous chapter, he's like, you're not, your children aren't going to have an inheritance because you've done this. But you know, you set it up like, not, not, not only now are you set up for the blessing, you set your spouse up for the blessings if you're married, and you set your kids up for the blessing. Oh, man, it's always the right day and the right time to do the right thing, no matter how hard it might be, right? Yes and amen.